How are we? Glad to be here? Yes? No. The Bible says it's better than a day in his courts is better than a thousand. Being in the presence of Jesus, somebody's like, don't get crude, Kevin. It's a little bit like pizza. I know that's like crude to some people. You're comparing to Jesus' presence like to pizza? Yeah. Even if it's bad, it's still pretty good, you know? Even if you come here and I lay an egg, you're still here with Jesus. You're still going to get something out of it. So we're really glad you're here. We're doing a, a series called Jesus Encounter. And uh, the reason for that, you can put the first slide up. Lot, say this with me. A lot of opinions, lot of opinions. Only, one only one truth. It's true. Lots of opinions about Jesus. There's only one truth. So we live in a day and an age where there's a lot of, um, we talked last week about uh, different perspectives of who Jesus is and how people see Jesus. And um, it really is irrelevant what you and I think of Jesus. It really is. What's, unless what we believe about Jesus is congruent or it lines up with who he says he is. Our opinions of him are irrelevant unless what we believe and what we understand to be about him is as he says it is. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't matter. But there's a lot of opinions out there about who Jesus is. And this is a big thing even, even in America and in, in the church today and around the world and in the culture. Everybody's got an opinion. Jesus isn't someone that you can avoid. You have to have an opinion about him. The problem with that is, is that Jesus doesn't tolerate just any opinion. He's looking for one of two answers. Either he's God and Savior or he's not. That is the only two answers he's willing to tolerate. He's not going to, he does not willing to tolerate any other answer. He said, either I am, either I'm God and I'm the Savior or I'm not. Those who gather towards me, if not, you're gathering away. It's hot or cold. If the one's on the middle ground, you have no part in me. He wants nothing to do with the middle ground. It's not God as you understand him to be. It's God as he, who he declares himself to be. Jesus isn't the one among many. He's the one and only. He doesn't tolerate a mutuality. He's not going to sit there and say, okay, I'm on a level with Gandhi. I'm on a level with, you know, uh, Buddha. I'm, you know, we're all, we're all one. We're all the same. He doesn't tolerate that. You see it when he took the disciples. He took them to a place called Caesarea Philippi. So when you read that story in the Bible where Jesus took his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi, it's hard to understand what's actually going on there. He took them to a grove in that area, and it was called, it was the Grove of Pan. It's where we get the word pantheon. So Pan being the goat god. So he took them to this region where the god Pan, the goat god, was worshipped. And Pan was the high god, and, in, and he took them to, a, it's a grotto, you can still see pictures of it today. And on, on the cave wall, or on the, the, the sheer, walk, sheer rock wall, they had uh, carved little niches in the walls. And into the niches of the walls, all of the people had put their different gods. And so Jesus takes his disciples, observant Jewish boys who had never done anything unkosher in their life, he takes them to an unkosher place. Jesus wouldn't go there. Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus wouldn't hold a family event on, on Halloween. Really? You don't know who he is, you know? And Christians like, well, what's the church celebrating Halloween? No, we're trying to seek and save the lost. Okay, so we have flack over sometimes, not all the time, but we used to get a lot more of it when we would do the fall thing event, and we still do, with um, Boys and Girls Club. Like, that's the devil's day. That's the devil's day. I don't know what the church is doing on the devil's day. Well, who told you it was the devil's day? Who told you that? 
You know, every day belongs to Jesus. I don't give the devil one inch, one quarter. He doesn't get an hour. He doesn't get a minute. I'm not giving him a second. I'm yielding him nothing. I yield nothing. It all belongs to Jesus. And so regardless, the point is, is like there are people have the perspective, well, we don't want to do that because that's unholy. Jesus took his disciples to this place, quote unquote, unholy, and they're looking at a wall that's just filled with gods. And Jesus looks at him and he says, who, am I, who do men say that I am? And then he says, who do, I, who do you say that I am? He's asking them the question of who he is in the midst of all of the gods of the culture, in the midst of the money and the fame and the success and the idolatry and the, you know, and the dolphins and the, you know, the panthers and everything that people worship, everything that people idolize. And they had gods for everything. They had a god for money called mammon. They had a god for alcohol called baka. They had gods for everything. And so everything that they did had a God attached to it. And Jesus said, in the midst of everything that mankind worshipped, who am I? Right? Jesus was not, deter- not going to tolerate them accepting him as being one among many. I'm either the one and only or I'm nothing at all. And that's really the point of decision that Jesus brings everybody to. And so that's, that's one of the messages of his ministry was to bring people to a point of decision. And here's a lot of this we're going to talk about today comes from the Gospel of John. And John wrote this gospel, and it's called the Universal Gospel. It's written to the whole world. And he tells us at the end of John, why, John tells us why he wrote the book. He wrote this book for this reason. And he says, I wrote this that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The, uh, he's the Messiah. And that by believing you may have life in his name. He says, I'm writing you to understand so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he is the Savior, and that through him you would understand that you have life in his name, or you can have life in his name. Eternal life coming from for surrendering your heart and surrendering your life to the true Christ. Some different perspectives that go on within the church in America today, very common, very common and very subtle. That's why I always want to ask people who Jesus is. It's the first question I want to ask. God, 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 you hear me? All I do is tell you about Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. There's going to be no confusion. I don't want there to be any confusion. I want you to understand it's Jesus. He's God. You're going to see he's not. He's God. It's, we're, going to, we're going to go into all of that. But part of the thing, one of the things church, churches are teaching today, and it's become a very big issue, is they teach universalism. And universalism, they don't even use the word universalist. I've been corrected. They're now called inclusionists. Okay? So they're no longer universalists because I guess universalism has gotten a bad name. So now they're inclusionists, which means they're, they're basically like this. If they believe that Jesus is the Savior, then they say, well, he died for the whole world and everybody's saved. They just don't know it yet. And that's not true. It, it, it's true in part, but it's not true in full. In part, yes, Jesus died for the whole world. The whole world, he's paid for the atone for the sins of the whole world. But mankind must accept the invitation. You've been invited to a party. You've been invited to a kingdom. You've got an RSVP. It's as simple as that. And when you RSVP, your name goes in the book. You're on the guest list. Yeah, all right, enter this way, Mr. Sutherland. No problem. Here we go. But if you don't RSVP, your name's not in the book. And so it's part of the idea. And then there's another teaching that wants to teach that Jesus wasn't divine. Jesus is, is you know, I mean, there are, um, they're called emergent churches. And there's a group of churches called emergent churches. And they took on a lot of identity in the last few years. And part of their, their, their thing is they, they would say, do we really need the virgin birth? 
I sat at a breakfast table with him one time. There was a couple of guys, some leaders. I didn't know where I was at. I was just sitting there, and I'm having breakfast, and I'm at this church conference. And I'm like, oh, let's go, let's go. And, and a couple of the guys were pretty big, were big shots, and they're sitting there, and they're having a conversation. And I, I seriously thought they were kidding. I thought this was like a joke, you know. So I'm eating my eggs and my bacon, and I'm like, oh, yeah. And they're like, well, you know, what if the virgin birth isn't real? And I'm like, what? You know, what if Jesus' dad was just a guy named Larry? I'm like, what? My favorite was, my favorite, this is the, I'm, I'm, I'm totally condensing the conversation. They're talking about stupid stuff. And then they say, well, what if hell isn't real? And my response to that was, hell yeah, hell's real. That was my response. So that was a problem, you know. They, but there are, people, there are churches in America today, and we want to get rid of sin. We don't want to, we want to pretend that there is no hell, and we want to act like everybody's saved. That's not what Jesus said. We preach another Christ. Right? So whether or not the things that Jesus says to us are convenient to us don't matter. Jesus is not out to stroke man's ego. He's out to save him from his arrogance and his pride. So he's not out to make you feel good, you know, feel like to the sinner, to the believer, he's trying to bring you into destiny. But to the sinner, he's trying to get you to understand that you're lost. And he doesn't have a problem offending you in the process. Right? Your house is on fire. Get out of the house. How dare you tell me my house is on fire? How dare you? He doesn't have a problem telling you. He doesn't have a problem saying it. And so the things that Jesus says, a lot of them, and it pertains to people who reject him, he says a lot of things to the unbeliever, and he says a lot of things to the believer. We're talking about two different worlds here. To the unbeliever, he tells them, you're lost. And, and to a lot of people, that's offensive to them. And to pastors, we have a hard time saying it. I mean, they, I know guys that just almost cringe. I've never heard them talk about hell once. And they almost cringe at, at, the, at, the, at the thought of having to talk about that. They don't want to. They don't even use the word sin. I mean, I listen to a lot of teachers, a lot of, I know a lot of different people, and I listen to a lot of stuff they say, and I'm like, where's the word? They never even use the word sin. You know? So there's an issue here. That's why Jesus has to be fully understood. Is he loving? Is he kind? Is he gracious? Is he merciful? He is all of those things and more. But he also wants you to know that apart from him, there's no life anywhere. So here's what Paul's saying. So John's saying, I wrote this gospel so that you would know that Jesus is who he says he is and that you would clearly understand what the process here is. John's the one that wrote, for God so loved the world. John's the one that wrote, unless you're, unless you're born again. He's the one that laid it all out. He's also the one that wrote about the Holy Spirit and says the Holy Spirit ministers with sin, righteousness, and judgment. So that's what he, he uses to convict the world of sin righteousness and judgment, not the believer, the unbeliever. That's what he uses to bring people to Christ. You know how we come to Christ? You know how I came to Jesus? You're lost. You're a sinner. You, you're not right in of yourself. Jesus is the only way to God, and if you reject him, you're going to hell, judgment. I was like, sign me up, okay? That was me. That's how that, and the Bible actually lays that out for us. You say, what's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? Yes, the kindness of God to me was, was God will forgive you. You're in a fallen condition, and you have to come to Christ, and his kindness, he will save you. He'll restore you. He'll do all that. The goodness of God brought me to him, but the fear of impending judgment also freaked me out, right? Because I knew in my conscience, nobody had to tell me. My mind didn't understand it, but I knew inside of me I was lost. And that's one of the things when the gospel is proclaimed, it, the Bible says the gospel, the message itself is the power. Not the messenger, the message. So when you proclaim the message of the gospel, and as it relates to sin and salvation, that message itself has power. It does something internally to people. And many of you, you came to Christ the same way. You know, the message did something to you, and you responded to it because the gospel itself carries the power and promotes you and carries you towards Jesus. 
So this has to be understood. John's writing this to us to understand this. Here's Paul writing to a church. He's writing to Corinth. We shared this last week. And he's telling this church, he says, my concern is is that when I leave, people are going to come in here and they're going to preach another Jesus. They're not only going to come in here and preach another Jesus, they're going to preach an entirely different gospel to you and they're going to preach a different spirit to you. And so there's a possibility and there's different Jesuses that are being proclaimed. So it's really important for the Christian to understand who and what Jesus says about himself. It's very important. It doesn't matter what anybody says. It doesn't matter what I say about him, unless what I say about him is what he says. And I have no interest in any opinion that's not his. I have no interest in any idea that's not his. And so I want to know who Jesus is. I want to understand him fully, and I want you to to, as well. Jesus said this about himself. He said, Matthew 24. They said, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So this whole conversation is going on here in Matthew 24. Jesus and his disciples, and he's talking about, I'm going to come and restore my kingdom. These are the things that that are going to happen. These are the markers that are in place. These are going to be signifiers to you that the end is coming and that you're you're approaching an an age where I'm about to return. And one of them was false Christ and false prophets will arise. Now, false Christ is not necessarily, it can be, someone who stands up and goes, I'm God, you know, that can be a false Christ. Or I'm the Savior, that can be a false Christ. But a false Christ can also be a teaching about Jesus that is not congruent to what he is or who he is. Understand that? That's a false Jesus. They're preaching another Jesus. So we have to be wary of that. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. There are pastors today that are teaching and saying, and a lot of the nouveau pastors and a lot of the young guys, unfortunately, need to probably go back to school and get a little more theological and spiritual training before they go saying things that they say. Because there are guys that are saying that you can have a relationship with God without Jesus. You don't need Jesus to have a relationship with God. Well, who told you that? You know, and where's that coming from? And that's, that's going on. There's a big ecumenical movement. And, and, and part of the problem is, is nobody, we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. A lot of the churches that you know, people come to, and they're a little feel-good, if you got up and told them sin, righteousness, and judgment, two-thirds of them would leave. And how do you know that? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He had a big crowd, and he told them, you want to follow me? It looks like this. I'm the one and only. you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's not about you. It's about me. And they all went, well, pff, we're out of here. I thought you were about me. I thought I was here for you to help me. Well, that's partly true, but that's not the whole. It, the, the kingdom comes when you surrender into it. Then the kingdom comes. So there's a lot of stuff going on. So true, uh, the true Jesus, not human wisdom, not human philosophy, not human institutions, not false religions. And so John's going to break it down for us. And this morning we're going to talk about Jesus is the word of God. Okay? It says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and there's nothing that was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and darkness cannot overtake it. Very powerful. So John says this. Next slide. John says, in the beginning. The question here is, is what beginning? What beginning is John talking about? He's talking about the beginning in Genesis 1.1. Okay? In the beginning. Before there was time, before there was space, before there was creation of any kind, Jesus was. And so John doesn't want anybody to misunderstand that Jesus is eternal. And part of the theology of the day and the teaching of the day was that Jesus, well, he's just a messenger from heaven. He's just like one of the angels or he's just like a, you know, some, some apparition or some kind of prophet. You know, the Gnostics said he's just a divine appearing. He wasn't fully God and he wasn't fully man. There was a lot of Judaizing teachers at the time that said he was just an angel. He was a messenger angel. Not true at all. 
the whole book of Hebrews, the first chapter of Hebrews, he's laying out the fact, that the writer's laying out the fact, Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the angels. Let all the angels of God worship him. Jesus, and the reason that he's doing that was because one of the teachings of the time was that Jesus was just an angel. It's still taught today, right? The Jehovah Witnesses teach that he's the, Michael, he's the archangel Michael. So it's still taught today that Jesus is an angel. He's not an angel. He's God in flesh. In the beginning was the word. So what this is telling us, okay, we're going to do theology this morning. I think you can handle it, all right? So I'm going to give you a protein bar, right? Instead of a Snickers bar, I'm going to give you a protein shake, right? Some, some uh, what is that, wheatgrass, and I'm going to give you a protein bar, and you're going to get buffed this morning. I'm going to give you some heavy stuff, right? So this is the word preexistent. So a divine quality of God is that he's preexistent. So if Jesus is God, he will be preexistent. And so this is what the Bible's telling us. Jesus existed before time and space. Now, if you really want to blow your mind about God, this is another interesting aspect of God. He created eternity and he created time and space. So God is so infinite that he is beyond eternity. And so God creates a realm called eternity, which is what we understand to be forever, simply as a framework for us to understand him, that he's timeless. Understand that? But ultimately, he doesn't even need eternity. He just is. Right? So he creates eternity, puts himself in eternity, and says, okay, so you guys can understand I'm timeless. And then he creates time and space. Time and space is a created world. We live in a realm. Okay? So here's a, this is, again, it's important to understand. There are two realities. There's a lesser reality called time and space, and there's a greater reality called the world of the spirit. There's two worlds. And when you get into the spirit, you get, begin to understand I'm in a different, you're, you're, you're interacting with a different world. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Have any spirit-filled people in the room this morning that understand what I'm talking about, right? So what happened when mankind fell is we became locked in time and space. How do you know that? Well, we know that from Genesis 6 when Adam fell, right? He was immediately separated from God. Lots of stuff going on there. But Adam, from that time forward, mankind became locked in time and space. Prior to that, work, prior to that time, there was an interaction between the divine world and the world of time and space, Angels were a common occurrence to Adam and Eve. That's why when an, an angel called a Hanafesh appeared to uh, Eve, it was a serpentine angel. It wasn't like a garden snake. Is a Hebrew word called Hanafesh. It was a specific type of being, literally a winged serpent, looked like an angel. I've shown pictures of it from, uh, or hieroglyphs of it from time to time here. So when a Hanafesh appears to Eve and starts talking to her, it looks like an angel that speaks, that she's like, oh, this must be a, a different kind of angel. I've never talked to this kind of one before, right? It wasn't unusual to her. She didn't freak out. Oh, my gosh. There's a, there's a being talking to me because it was normal. They interacted with the divine world. The Bible says that God walked with man in the cool of the garden, right? Has he walked with any of you in the cool of the garden lately? I mean, he, it's like a, it was a little bit of a different experience there. In, in, you see it a lot even through Hebrew iconology. You see, like, anybody know the Star of David? It's two triangles, one triangle going up, one triangle going down, and they're, they're overlaid over each other. That's the Star of David. And it means two worlds as one, heaven and earth. That's the whole symbol, right? When you really get heavy, David's name is spelled this way, this way, this way. The name David is three triangles, DVD, Right? And when, that'll give you something. When Jesus says, I give to you the key of David, what's the key of David? Two worlds becoming one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a whole other level. We can leave the reservation on that one. But the point, the point is, is that those two worlds were one. There was an interaction with the spirit world. Mankind fell. This is why all we know is time and space. 
You and I, all we know is a world of the senses. We know a natural world. We know sight, touch, feeling, you know, hunger. That's, that's all the world we know because we were born into a world of time and space. When you become born again, you now have access to the world of the spirit. Does this make sense to you? Now, all of a sudden, there's a whole different reality. There's a whole different experience that's available to you. Time and space was not opened up until Jesus was baptized. So here you see the prophets. In, so time and space, mankind was locked in time and space. The prophets would cry out, rend the heavens, Lord. Open up the heavens and come down. Several times in the Old Testament, the cry of the prophets was to open the heavens. Get us out of this world in which we're frozen in. We can't access you. The spirit would come, the spirit would go. The spirit would come, the spirit would go. But they would remain trapped. They couldn't access the spirit world at will. I don't know if you're aware of this, Christian. You can access the Holy Spirit at will. At will. Holy Spirit, come. All you got to do is step into his presence. He activates you. You have access to the Holy Spirit 24-7. At will. Prior to Christ, that that was not available. So the heavens had been sealed. The heavens opened at the baptism. Anybody know what happened? Know the story, right? Jesus was baptized, and what happened? The heavens opened. The Spirit came down as a dove, and the voice of the Father spoke. For the first time since the fall of man, the heavens became opened. It's true. And so now mankind, through Christ, has access into the world and into the the world of the Spirit. He transferred that to us at his resurrection. He said, don't touch me, Mary. I've got to ascend to the Father. He had to take everything to the Father. Then once he took it to the Father, now he can entrust the treasuries of everything that he's done to you and I. Where was I? (laughs) He was in the beginning. So Jesus is the word of God to man. So it talks about the beginning. We have to understand the beginning. Before time and space, God created the realm of time and space. That is very important to understand. Because if you understand that, then you understand there's two worlds. There's this world, and there's his world. The Christian is to live how? On earth as what? It is in heaven. So the way we are designed to live as believers is from his world to ours, which means we need to be in tune with his world. That's what it means. We have access to his world, and we are to go to his world, understand his world, and make that world, make that world ours. What does that look like? Well, that looks like a lot of things. One of the ways that looks like is you want a vision for your life, you get into the spirit. What is God saying? You want a vision for your marriage? Lord, what are you saying over my home? What are you saying over my life? You go to his world. Your circumstances in your marriage may be saying, divorce, divorce, divorce. Go to him. Go to his world. Lord, what are you saying? Light, whatever, whatever it is he's saying, and you go and you go to his world, and you make his world yours. Is this making sense to any of you? Or am I losing you? No? Okay, I know I'm getting kind of complicated here a little bit. So the way we make heaven to earth is like, you know, it's like, it's like we go to him, we get the mind of Christ, and we take those things that are his through the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, and we take those things and we bring them into this world, right? So we, we begin to step about that. One, and again, just on a personal level, vision is a huge one. A lot of people want to know what the plan is for your life. Get in the spirit, get before the Lord, go to his world, Lord, speak over me. What's, what, what are you saying? What are you doing? Then not only that, you get the mind of Christ and you begin to see actually how this stuff can happen. Some of you, you're like, how do you know, like, okay, I raised kids, right? I got married and I wore my knees out because I fell on my knees once I got married and I would be like, help, I don't know what I'm doing. So I had to constantly be dependent upon him to show me how to do this. Then I had children, same thing. I didn't know how to do this. 
I have, I'm, I, I by no means have said that I have arrived. What I do consistently, though, my wife will testify that this is true, is Kevin is really, really slow with decisions. And I, oh, I can make a quick decision. You want a decision, I'll give you one. You know, but I'm very slow because I want the mind of the Lord or I'm not doing it. Either I have God's permission to do it where he just says, go do what you want, or I get completely what he's telling me or I don't want anything to do with it. And, and, and I have come to that place because I've been beat down so many times by making my own decisions. And so I don't do anything. So I have circumstances face me all the time, harsh ones that demand an answer in the moment. And I'm like, I'm not answering it. I don't care how much that circumstance screams at me. I'm not answering that. If I don't have an answer, I'm not going to answer it. And then people are like, you've got to give us an answer. You've got to give us an answer. And I'm like, in due time. In due time. And yeah, do I feel anxiety to answer it? Yeah, but I'm not answering it through anxiety. I'm going to hear the spirit of the Lord. I'm like, what are you saying? What are you saying? You know what's an amazing thing to me? When you develop a relationship with Jesus and you start communing with him, he actually starts talking to you. Sometimes he'll just directly tell me. Other times he'll go, well, what are you thinking on that, Kevin? You know, I'll hear him say, like, what, 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 what were you thinking about that? And I'll go, well, this is what I was thinking. And he'll go, yeah, that's good, but let's add this to it or let's add that to it. Because you, you see, he wants to partner with you. He doesn't just want to be there as a teacher instructing you and telling you what to do all the time. He wants to relate to you. You see, when he created Adam, God didn't name the animals, did he? Whatever Adam called the animal, that was its name. He's like, what do you think, Adam? What do you, what do you think that is? I don't know. I'm going with giraffe. Okay, sounds good. What are we going to go with that? I don't know. That looks like a cricket. I don't know. That's just the word that comes to me. Cricket. We'll go with cricket. And the Lord said, fine. He wanted to know what Adam thought. He wanted to know what Adam under, what, what, how Adam was seeing it. I'm not saying that's the case all the time. But a lot of times when you start developing a relationship with the Lord, you're going to see what he does. You know? Like I've had him give me visions, and there's a lot of times he tells me to do this. I'm like, what do you want me to do? He'll say, I want you to give me a plan. He didn't give me the plan. He goes, go get a plan. And so I'll go get a plan, and I'll go with it, and he'll go, eh, I don't know. About 20% of this we can use. 80% of it we're going to get rid of. But nonetheless, what he wants you to do, this is how it works. He'll give you a vision for your life, and sometimes, not all the time, sometimes with that vision, you'll go, I don't know what I'm doing, and then he'll start teaching you. He'll say, okay, do these things. You start learning his ways, start learning his ways, then he wants you to model his ways. And so he'll tell you, Kevin, give me a plan. How much do you know about me? So I want you to see. I want you to give me a plan. And so I'll go and I'll give him a plan. And again, I go and I present it to him. And then he pushes it back and says, okay, this is what we're going to deal with. This is what we're not. And it's this constant exchange, this back and forth. And as the back and forth happens, then all of a sudden something is formulated. But it's in relationship. We, are, we, we like treat this faith as if it's just this militant understanding, if it's just obedience, whatever God says. That's part of it. But that's not the whole. Discipleship or discipline is the lowest form of discipleship. You hear me say that all the time. The highest form of discipleship is relationship. He wants to relate with you. It's a son and a daughter. It's a communal aspect. That's what he really wants. Now, if all you can get to, if you can barely get to the level of obedience, well, that's fine. You know, but ultimately what he wants you to grow into is he wants you to grow into a relationship where you're relating to him. What are you saying? What are you doing? Uh, all this kind of things. And he will literally speak and show up in any arena of your life if you'll let him. The problem is, is most Christians have never trained themselves or disciplined themselves to hear him. We've never created the margin where we can, sit, we can sit around and we can talk. We answer out of our own wisdom. We ask her, We answer impulsively. We make up our own decisions. We let our lives be dictated to us by circumstance. 
You sh if you're going to continue to live and let your life be dictated by circumstance, then that's what you're going to get. You need to let your life be dictated to you by mandate. Now we're on a whole other level. Okay? What is your purpose? What is the mandate? What is the must that you're putting over my life? And that's a few graduate steps up from where, where most people are at, but ultimately that's it. When he puts a mandate over you and he says, that's what I want from you, then he expects you to say no to everything else and pursue what he set in front of you. So if he says to you, I want you to raise your son, I want you to commit time to your child, that's your mandate for what? For this season of your life. Then if he says to you at another page of your life, I want you to let them go and let them be their own person. I want you to back off. I want you to decrease. And I want you to let me be their God instead of you being their God. That's another mandate. So now my mandate is to not be that role in my kid's life anymore, but to let Jesus be that role. These are mandates. You know, I want you to love your wife. Okay, Lord, I see that. It's in a word. I don't know how to love her. What's, my, what's your mandate? And he may say to you, your, your mandate is kindness. Your mandate towards your wife is kindness. You're not going to do anything but be kind. What does kindness mean? Kindness means everything kind. Give her water. If she needs water. You need to like some water. Talk to her in a sing-song voice. Be kind, even when she doesn't deserve it. That's a mandate. You understand where I'm going? Then you can have mandates that lead you into eternity, that lead you into destiny. But we start learning to live our lives by mandate and not by dictates. Big difference. Big difference. Crickets, you're all like... <laughs> You know, I was soaking it in. Yeah, got it. I told you it was going to be a protein shake. So this isn't Jesus light here. This is Jesus 100 proof. So that's, that's how he is. And this is what he wants. And this is where the Christian becomes insanely powerful. And this is where the Christian becomes unique in their generation. And this is where the kingdom begins to flow into every area of our life because we're codependent with him. You're created to be codependent. Not on drugs, not on alcohol, not on relationships. Your codependency is on him and on his presence. That's what you're created to be codependent on. And man, when you become codependent on him, you've reached the point where you're like, I don't care if the freaking world burns down. I'm not answering that until I got a word from the Lord. <laughs> like, it's all going to end unless you answer it. And I'm like, then let it end. Let it end. Until I know Jesus is answering me, I'm not doing anything. You know? Just saying. So Jesus says he's the word of God. He says, you search the scriptures for in them you feel like you have life, and they are that which testify of me, but you're not willing to come. He's talking to the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. These were people who could quote the word of God inside and out. They could give you a verse from the scripture. They could give you five or six supporting verses of that verse. They could actually tell you how many letters were in each verse. This is who the people he's talking to. And he says, you guys think you have life in the, in the scriptures. They're that which testify of me. So Jesus is saying he's the word of God. Then he says in Hebrews, it's speaking of him. This is a prophecy from the book of Psalms. He says, lo, I come and what is written of me in the volume of the books. I'm trying to find my thing, but I don't have it. Anyway, and lo, what it, so, he is the, so Jesus is the word of God. This is what John is telling us. Well, what does that mean? He is the expression of God to us. So he's that word. He's also the spoken word. He's that word. He's the written word, which is the logos. He's the prophetic word and the revealed word, which is the rhema. And he's the word of promise. This is important. God has, does anybody believe God has promises for you? Yes. Do you believe that? Okay, so right, so we have a dispensational theology, and I just like to, whenever I see that bus cross, I just want to ram it, right? So dispensational theology says, you can't believe God for something that, you, so if God gave a promise to Abraham, 
That was the dispensation that he was moving in with Abraham. And you cannot claim the promise of Abraham over your life. Well, says who? That's a dogma. That's a teaching of men, yet that's what we do. We have these teachings. You can't claim the promise of healing because that was a healing, that, that healing was given to the apostles in the dispensation of the apostolic age. Again, dogma, not doctrine. It's not in the scripture. There's nowhere in the Bible. That's just men making this stuff up and making it sound all rosy. Right? So I had a guy one time, and he corrected me, and I was telling this guy, you need to believe God, you need to, you know, and I was, I don't know, I, was, I might have been quoting him, I was either quoting him Deuteronomy, or I was quoting him a promise that was made to Abraham, but I'm telling him, man, you need to believe God, he made this promise to Abraham, you need to own that promise, and you need to believe God for it, and this well-meaning pastor comes to me and tells me that I can't teach people to believe God for the promises, and he goes into a long explanation, oh, I mean, I could tell you where you can find that kind of teaching, and it wouldn't be hard. You can, you know, drive around. There's lots of people that don't believe God's working and doing anything anymore. And there's lots of people that will tell you that God is not a God of promises. Faith, by definition, is believing God at the promises. That's what it is. So we put faith in Jesus because he promised to save us, right? He says, if you do this, he makes a promise. If you give your life to me, I will forgive you, I will cleanse you, and I will give you my spirit. And you go, okay, you put faith in a promise, and you receive the benefit of the promise. So they have a hard time answering this one. We're going to say it together just to kind of reinforce it. Say it with me. For no matter how many promises God has made, that means every promise God has made. That's right. You can say that too. That means every promise God has made, they are, everybody say it with me, yes, in Christ, and so through him, Amen. amen to the glory of God. Yes means yes, and amen means so be it. So when you believe God for a promise, he says yes to it, and he says so be it. So it doesn't matter what the promise is. Now, promises have conditions attached to them that have to be met, but it doesn't mean that the promise is not for you. Salvation itself has a condition attached to it. You can be saved, but your condition is you got to give your life away. Well, I don't want to give my life away. Well, then you don't get the promise but the promise is still there, right? And so there's numerous and countless promises in God's word, and they all have conditions attached to them, right? And one of the conditions is you gotta contend for them. So if, if, if there's a promise spoken in the word of God, and if God has done it for anybody else, he'll do it for you. Yes. He's no respecter of persons. There's a promise in the Bible where God, where, uh, the, the, the apostle went to the centurion's house and he said, you and your whole household will be saved. There's some of us here, your whole household isn't saved. There are people in your family that don't know Christ. You take that promise, and you believe God, and you say, Lord, you set, you put it up before heaven. You go, well, if God wants to save my family, he's going to save my family. It doesn't work like that. Faith is not passive. Faith is active. Faith requires participation. Lord, you said, you put the promise up before him, I believe you that you're going to save my family. I believe you. And you begin to, you begin to put a rag on your head, you put a knife in your teeth, and you become contentious for that promise. You're willing to fight for it. You're, you say, I'm going to pray whatever prayers he tells me. I'm going to believe for whatever he needs. I'm going to bind. I'm going to lose. I'm going to do whatever it takes. But I'm going to see that promise come to pass. Amen. And that promise will come to pass. The Bible says, though the vision tarries, wait for it. It's going to come. The Bible says, be not weary in well-doing. It will come. It's going to happen. The problem is we're, we, we're Burger King generation. Or we're have it our way, have it now, immediate you know, everything's instantaneous in our society, so we treat God the same way. Lord, I want my whole household saved. Well, it didn't happen. 
Three days ago, when three days went by and nothing happened, and so you know we 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 do that. It doesn't work like that. The Bible teaches something called contending. Knock until it opens. Seek until you find. Ask until it's given to you. Jesus uses those examples, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. The guy who's asleep with his kids in bed. Hey, man, I need bread. Dude, I'm asleep and my kids are at bed. I don't care. I need bread. And the guy keeps asking until the dude came downstairs, right? right. And then you have the judge, the unrighteous judge. So the, where the ladies following him around, hear my case, hear my case. It says he didn't regard God and he didn't regard man. But he said this woman was driving him up the wall. So he said, I better do something about it. And what Jesus is teaching us is not that we drive him up the wall. He's teaching us perseverance. He's saying persevere no matter the cost. No matter how many no's you get or no matter how, what the circumstances is against you, if I said you can have it, persevere into it. Pursue into it. That's hard. It's not easy. It really isn't. It's easy to just say that, but it's hard to believe that. It's hard to believe because you know the opposite side of that too is the devil wants to show you the contrary. right? So you're believing God that your family's going to get saved? And the devil starts highlighting to you how they're living. They're living like hell. You know what I mean? Every time you scream through Instagram, they're, oh, my gosh. It's my brother again. I don't know. Lord, I thought I was believing you for him. I thought you were going to save him. You know? So the enemy wants to show you the opposite of the promise. You're believing God for a breakthrough, and all you're getting is more piled on you. right? You're believing God for a new day, and then the day that you're in keeps getting worse. We're to, we're to move forward in spite of what we see and in spite of what we feel. He's the spoken word, the written word, the prophetic word, and the word of promise. His character and nature shines through every book of the Bible. You can throw this slide up there. I'm going to read it off the screen for you. Throw up the next one. There you go. In Genesis, he's the creator. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the high priest. In Numbers, he's the fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's, the, he's Israel's guide. In Joshua, he's the victorious leader. In Judges, he is Israel's guard. In Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, he's the trusted prophet. In Kings, he's the sovereign king. In Ezra, he's the true and faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of broken walls and lives. In Esther, he is Mordecai's courage. In Job, he's the eternal redeemer. In Psalms, he's the song of the morning. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's the time and the season. In Song of Solomon, he's the lover's dream. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. Jeremiah, he is the weak being prophet. Lamentations, he's the cry for Israel. In Ezekiel, he gives life to the dry bones. In Daniel, he's the stranger in the fire. Hosea, he is the forever faithful. Joel, he's the spirit's power. Amos, he is the strong arms that carry us. Obadiah, he's the Lord and Savior. In Jonah, he is the great missionary. Habakkuk and Zephaniah, he is the one crying for revival. In Haggai, he restores the lost. In Zechariah, he is our fountain. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is the God and Messiah. He is God and Messiah. In Acts, he is the one raining the fire down from heaven. In Romans, he is the grace of God. In Corinthians, he is the power of love. In Galatians, he's freedom from the curse of sin. Thank you, Jesus. He's in Ephesians, he's the glorious treasure. In Philippians, he's the servant's heart. Colossians, he's the Godhead and the Trinity. In Thessalonians, he is our coming king. Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, he is our mediator and faithful pastor. In Hebrews, he is the finished work. James, he's the elder who heals the sick. In Peter, he is our faithful shepherd. John and Jude, he's the lover coming for a spotless bride. And in Revelation, he's king of kings and lord of lords. Any questions? Right? <laughs> That makes you want to go, excuse me for a minute, you know? I mean, that's like, he's, he's in every book of the Bible. Next slide. 
Jesus said, you search them because you say they have eternal life. Every book that, that is testifies of me. Before the beginning, so he's pre-existent. Jesus creates time and space. The word was God. This is an interesting phrasing in the Greek. So it says the word was, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. It is the words theos anhaglogos. And what it means was God was word, and word was God. So literally what it's meaning is that the Lord is his word, and his word is who he is. It's synonymous with his nature. So God's word is synonymous with his nature. He says of his word, he says, my word I hold above my name. So if you don't think Jesus cares about his word, he says, my word's more important to me than my name. Anybody like people who don't do what they say? (laughs) Some of you are like, you know, God is a God who does what he says. My word I hold above my name. You can bank on it. If he's made a promise, he'll keep it. He'll keep it. Have I not said it? Will I not do it? Will I not, have I not purposed it in my heart? Will I not bring it to pass? Some of you, you need a promise from God. You do. You can get it from a verse. You can get it from a scripture. You can get a prophetic word. I'll tell you my story. I believe in the promises of God, right? So when I got married, I asked God to put a promise over my marriage because I was dead broke, right? You're never broke, man. Your daddy's rich if you're a believer, okay? So just because Daddy Warbucks is doing all this wonderful stuff for those children, I know my father will do something more for me. And you know what I asked him for? I said, put a promise over my marriage. And he said, there'll never be a need in your house I will not meet. That's what he said. I'm going on 30 years of marriage, and there's never been a need in my house that he has not met. Right? My daughter was born, again, early in, the, early in the marriage. We're dead broke. We don't know what we're going to do. We're like, oh, MG, what are we going to do? And the Lord said, I will never fail to provide for her. My daughter's whole life is a story of God's constant provision. Amen. We literally, for probably the first three years of her life, didn't pay for anything. I'm talking diapers. Everything was given to us because God made a promise. A promise is better than a gift, people, because a promise keeps going and going and going and going. My daughter ended up going to college for completely free. Everything that she, everything to this day, what she needs, she, because I, I told her that my whole life. I said, God said he would, he would always provide for you, Mariah. God said that he would always, whatever the phrasing was that I told her. And she always goes back to God with that promise. And you know what he does? He meets her every time. Every time. So you need to ask God, what, is there a promise? What's, what's the promise over me? What's a word over my life? What's a, and we get too afraid. We think he's going to say something negative. He's going to say something completely the opposite. He's probably going to blow your mind. He's going to, you know, when I became a believer, I asked God, put a promise over me. And he goes, you're going to lead my people. I'm like, what? I'm going to lead your people. You, know, you guys hear me just tell the stories. I couldn't lead a dog across the street. I didn't know. I thought Job was the book of Job. I thought Malachi was an Italian named Malachi. I mean, that's how much of the scripture I knew. Serious. Job, oh, this is how you get a job. I guess this is the, I I didn't know anything. But I knew enough to ask him for something, and he made a promise to me. And then when he he made a promise over my life, I began to live towards the promise. It's not enough to just get the promise. You have to live towards the promise. And you have to call God into account for the promise. Put me in remembrance of my word, he says. He goes, does God forget? Jesus doesn't forget his word. You know what he wants to know? Do you know it? That's why he says, put me in remembrance of my word. He didn't forget. He just wants to know, do you remember? Do you know what I said? Because he knows what he said, but he wants to know, do you know what I said? That's why we remember him. And we said, Lord, you said. Lord, you did this for Abraham. Lord, you did this for Isaac. Lord, you did this for Jacob. Lord, you did this here. You did this here. You did this here. If you did it there, you're no respecter of persons. You're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. I want you to do it for me. 
and know he's going to sell you? 100% he's going to say yes. But you know what else he's going to tell you? He's going to tell you you're going to have to change everything. Because what you are and where you are is not sufficient for what you just asked for. You're going to ask him for something that's beyond where you are. And he'll say, you can have it, but you're going to have to change everything. You're going to have to change the way you think. You're going to have to change your friends, which that's hard. You're going to have to change your associations. You're going to have to, there's so many things. You're going to have to change your habits. You're going to have to change your, the way you spend your money. You're going to have to change everything. And if you're not willing to do that, you can have it. But this is the condition attached to that promise. It's total and complete transformation. And, the, and you know what he does? It's almost a dare. How bad do you want it? How bad do you want it? You want it bad enough to change? I'm like, take it all, Lord. Take everything. I want everything. I don't want anything in me that keeps me from what I just asked you for. And if you're not willing to go there, and I'm going to tell you, most aren't. Because when we ask him for something, and then we cry and we suck our thumb and we pout like babies because we think he doesn't want to give it to us, it's not God not giving it to you. It, the problem's with you. The problem is there's areas of your life you're not willing to yield. And your unwillingness to yield is what is inhibiting him from giving to you what you asked him for. I told you you could be a leader. I'm like, okay, what do you want me to do? You know what he tells me? Study leadership. Do you know what I did? I still study leadership. For probably seven or eight years of my life, I studied leadership. Leadership conferences, leadership books, leadership seminars, leadership videos, leadership tapes. That's what I did. You say, well, it's just going to come to you supernaturally. No, it's not. He puts a word on you. And he says, this is what I'm going to do with you. This is where I want you to go. This is the promise that I give you. But it requires something of you. You want to lead my people? It's going to require this of you. It's going to require that of you. You're going to have to learn to take risks, Kevin. If you're not going to take risks, well, then forget it. I'm at a stage in my life again. I'm, all not, I'm not using myself because I'm so elevated. I'm so high above you guys. That's not the point. I'm trying to give you an example of how God works. Okay? You hear me say it all the time. I'm not an observer. I'm a practitioner. The church's problem is that it's run by a bunch of engineers. I'm a combat general. You understand that? I put my nose in the fight. I'm not sitting back here wondering which dials to turn. We're going in, and we're going to engage this thing. I'm not going to observe it. I'm going to participate in it. It's a big difference. Big difference. Most of the churches are run by theologians who have never practiced anything, yet they have opinions about everything. Drives me up the wall. <laughs> it's true. You got an opinion about the kingdom, yet you know nothing about it. You got an opinion about miracles, yet you've never seen one. You got an opinion about tithing, yet you've never tithed. It's true. We got opinions about everything, but yet we've never done anything. It's, it's, it's absolutely insane. Crazy stuff. This is how it works. I'm believing God for higher things in my life right now. And you know what it requires me? requires risk. It requires me to confront fear on every level. And it requires me to discipline myself into what not only I want, but what he told me I could have. Amen. If I do not discipline myself, and it's not about me, you understand this. So the success and the failure of where we're going is not about me, but the speed by which I get there is directly related to my partnership. Amen. If I'm not willing to partner, we're not going anywhere. And I have to partner. Right? Having done all stand, we partner with him and allow, we come, we, we, you move with the Lord, you come up to a barrier, you believe God. If there's no way around the barrier, that's where he steps in. He removes the barrier, then he gives you the next point, and you keep moving forward. 
but you have to do something. And it's all, it all basically comes down to how bad do you want it? How bad do you want it? What do you want and how bad do you want it? I, 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 again, it's a cornerstone teaching at Elevate. It's like, if you don't know what you want, you're never going to have it. It's never going to happen. You're wishful. Well, I want what Jesus wants. You know what Jesus wants? He wants to know what you want. Yeah. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will give you what he has sired. That's what it means, what he has impregnated you with. What's in your heart? What's the Holy Spirit put in your heart? You have desires. Then you give to him that desire. That desire, the desire itself is not, is not wrong. I told first service, Jesus is, we, we think that Jesus neuters people. He sterilizes the Christians, and we become these religious sterile robots. It's nowhere in his word. Jesus loves the wild. He loves the free. He what he does is he takes the wild, and he wants to take the wild and refocus the wild nature. He's not out to neuter your wild nature. He's not out to sterilize the wild drive that you have. He's out to take that wildness, that passion, that pursuit, that drive, and point it in the right direction. We teach that he's trying to dumb everything down, and we're just supposed to be a bunch of robots, religious and uptight, arrogant, doesn't work. <laughs> I was telling uh, Tom this morning, I go, my, my, my MO is I'm the irreverent reverend. I said, I've had, you're just too irreverent, Kevin. You're, too, you're like a loose cannon up there. I'm like, Jesus loves me, man. That's all I got to say. <laughs> Jesus loves me. But he doesn't want to take that from you. You know, he wants to unleash you. He doesn't want to, you know, all this wild, crazy stuff and just passion and the drive and the love and the excitement and the vigor that you have for all of these things. He's not trying to take it from you. He's trying to refocus it from things that destroy you into things that give you life. That's what he's trying to do. That's the purpose within, that, he's, that he's working in you. So the father's the owner, the son's the planner, and, and the overseer and the Holy Spirit is the executor. This is how the Trinity works. Jesus made the world. Jesus is the, is, the, is the planner and the architect of creation. So the father owns it all. This is, again, you see it in the Gospels. You see the father, there was a man who owned a vine or a, a vineyard, and the, the vine dressers were misusing it. And so the father sent the son. So he was the owner, but he sent the son to be the overseer go and see what's going on. So we see this concept in creation. God the Father owns everything. The heavens, even the highest heavens are his. Everything belongs to him, but he is allowed, but the son, it's all a partnership. It's co-equal, but each one fulfills a different role, but they're doing it synonymously. Say, can you explain that? Not really. So the Father owns it. The, Jesus architects it. He creates the plan, and the Holy Spirit executes it. That's what you see in creation. Jesus architects the plan, and the Holy Spirit animates it. That's what you see in being born again. Jesus is the author of salvation. He's the one who's architected the plan of salvation, and the Holy Spirit is the one who animates it or gives life to it, right? So Jesus lays the plan out, says this is what it looks like. We go, okay, we're going to come into the plan, and then the Holy Spirit comes into us and brings life to it. Same thing in creation. Jesus creates the world. Here it is. It's formed, and you have the Holy Spirit brooding over the water. What's he doing? He's animating. He's bringing life to it. So this is the divine partnership. So Jesus is the creator. He's the architect of creation. Last days, all things have been spoken by the Son. Jesus is the message to mankind. There is no other means by which God is speaking to man other than through the personhood of Christ. That's where it all begins. You want to know the Lord? It begins with Jesus. You want to know God? It begins with Jesus, and it ends with Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Come on. 
He appointed heir of all things through whom he created the world. So Jesus is the creator of the world. He is the radiance and the direct imprint of his nature. He's the complete, perfect representation of God. So, and he holds all things together by the word of his power. So this is an interesting place just to kind of insert this. There are things in this world that exist just because Jesus said so. Did you know that? And I believe he creates things just to make men, because he takes the foolishness of this world to confound the wise. And the wisdom of God, or the, the weakness of God, is greater than the strength of man, right? So we, with all of our physical science and all of the things that we think we can understand the universe, and the Lord throws out a bumblebee. Let's figure that one out. <laughs> Fat little bug with tiny little wings. By all degrees of science, that bug should not fly. There is no reason by any cow, no, nothing in physical or applied science, nothing in the sciences that we know would allow that bug to fly. They forgot to tell the bumblebee. That's the problem. Hey, man, science told you you couldn't fly. Well, I can fly, man. And you know why he flies? Because Jesus wants him to fly. That's why. There's a bird. It's a hummingbird, and this is a mating ritual, right? I told first service, if you can do what this bird does, you're varsity, man. So you're, you're in. So this bird goes into a dive. So when it's trying to get the attention of the female, it goes into a power dive. And it dives at nine times the speed that it dives is nine times the force of gravity. So it is diving at a rate of speed based on its size at a rate of speed faster than a fighter jet at, at its highest Mach. And so physical science says by the rate of dive that this bird is diving with, it should either completely just implode or just like, you know, just fall apart because the, the, the centrifugal forces against it are too great, or it should black out. Yet the bird just keeps doing loops. Vroom. And it dives at this rate of speed that's beyond all applied sciences. And scientists look at that and go, this bird defies the laws of physics. Absolutely. Why does it get to dive? Because Jesus likes to watch it dive. It's just that simple. He thinks it's cool. He's like, yeah, I like that. I like that. Yeah, keep impressing the chicks. Yeah, yeah let the girls all check you out when you're doing that. That's fine. It's great. They're planets that spin in opposite orbits. This is, again, astrophysics, science can't understand. Planets are supposed to rotate based upon all of the things that are going on in that you know, solar system or that, that galaxy. Planets are supposed to operate a certain way. Well, the problem with that is, is that not all the planets operate the way that they tell it. There's planets that rotate in the opposite direction. And if you ask someone why that happened, they don't know. They don't have an answer. That planet spins the opposite way because Jesus wants it to spin the opposite way. Everything he does, he does because he said so. It's that way because I say so. And he does everything by the word of his power. Next slide. He just likes to have fun. Say, why does he love you? Because he loves you. And he gets to tell you who you are, and nobody else does. His opinion's the only one that matters. Say, why am I your son, Lord? Because I said so. Why do you love me? Because I want to. Nobody else, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Nobody else can tell you you're not loved when Jesus tells you you're loved. I'm sorry to tell you that. I don't care who told you you're unlovable. Jesus has never told you you're unlovable. Not once. I don't tell, care who told you you were abandoned. Jesus has never abandoned you, nor will he ever. I didn't say you didn't experience abandonment. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm telling you that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And when you develop that communion and relationship with you, him, you're going to realize that that's true. Nothing else matters. Nobody's opinion matters. His is the only one that matters. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So we're talking about two different types of life here. You guys get anything out of this? Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm like, do I keep going? Do I slow, slow, slow? So here's, 
in the Greek, there's two different types of life. There's the word bios, which is where we get biology, right? So your physical life. And there's another word for life called zoe, which means God-given life or life animated, right? So what the Bible's saying is here that in Jesus is God life. God life is available nowhere else but in Jesus. And so now we understand this. You guys can, I'm going to bring you back into an experience that I believe you've all had, or at least most of you. When you become born again, so you're born physically alive, but you must be born again because you're born spiritually dead, the Bible says, because we're born in sin. We're born in trespasses and sin. But when you receive Jesus, the life of God comes into you, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, you become aware. The light becomes, the light, or excuse me, the life becomes light. The life awakens you. So when the life of God comes into you, you become awakened. All of a sudden, the trees are colored, the birds are singing, the, you know, the, there's, that's called the born-again experience. That's the, one of the evidences that we're saved. One of them, not the only one, but one of the evidences that we're saved is that awakening. The life of God, the Zoe of God comes into you, and you now receive life. Not only is that available when you get born again, Christian, it's available to you anytime you want it. Anytime you want it. You want to go back and you want to experience that awakening, you get in the spirit and God's going to awaken you. He's going to animate the world to you. That, that, you mean, I mean, to me, I can't get away from this. I share this all the time. But when you get in the spirit, you like you. You don't like you when you're, in the, when you're not in the spirit. I don't like me. When I'm not in the spirit, my wife will be like, you're a jerk. And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're right. I am. Yeah, you're right. I, I'm not admitting it right now, but I, but I know I'm, being, I'm not being the nice person. Right? Yeah, don't laugh too hard. You do the same thing, okay? We all I know, I got you. I'm just, joking. I'm just joking with you. But then you come into the spirit, and all of a sudden, like, woo. I, you like you. Everybody likes you. You like everybody, right? <laughs> drunk. It's like my uncle, man. My uncle get drunk at the Christmas parties. He'd have a few beers in him, bust out his wallet, and start throwing out 20s, right? We'd all, be, all the kids would be in the room. How many beers has he had? How many beers? He's on his third one. So when he got about three beers, we'd all stand at the table and wait for him to start just stand there. And he'd be like, here, kids. You kids need some money. You start throwing out money. That's what the Bible relates it to being in the spirit. You're drunk in the spirit. You're, you're intoxicated, right? You guys, have, come on. You ever been in a spirit? You're just like, oh, yeah. Honey, they blew up the car. That's okay. It's not a problem. Not a problem. <laughs> You come in and you're really angry, then you get in the spirit and you're like, why was I angry? There's no reason to be angry. Born again. So without Christ, I won't read this, but I'll give you the synopsis. We're dead in trespasses and sins. And the Bible says we're under the authority of the devil. Our ancestors surrendered dominion of the human race to a fallen angel. Adam gave up the human race to a fallen angel. And the devil claims right of inheritance over every non Christian, period. If you're not in Christ, you're a part of his covenant and you're part of his kingdom, and that kingdom is condemned. That's why when, when, when the judgment happens and the condemnation happens, it's not an issue of individuals being thrown. It's a whole system. God is going to destroy that whole satanic system, and those that are attached to that satanic system are those who have never become born again. So when God judges the system, everything that's attached to that satanic system goes with it. Our ancestors sold us out. The devil has legal right over the human race. Legal right. Except Christ. That he's the only way out of that. He claims sentence over you. I'm born. I'm born in sin. He claims right over every sinner. Period. 
When I come to Jesus, I no longer belong to the devil. I belong to the Lord. And God is superior. It's not this cosmic tug of war. God is superior. It's just that the enemy at this time, until Jesus does away with it all, claims inheritance over it. That's why the scripture tells us that he seals you with the Holy Spirit. What it is is it's like a label. He, He seals you. So when you pass from this world into the next, the seal of the Holy Spirit is on you. Holy Spirit goes right this way. Follow me. Here we go, right? When you die without Christ, the devil goes, oh, that one's mine. And away you go. And you go to where, he is be- where, where he- the people that follow him are being held. You go to that place until the final judgment. It's just the way it is. It's an it's inconvenient truth, but it is a truth. That's the reality. You know, and when we teach anything contrary to that, because that is, I'm, I'm abridging it, but that's what the Bible clearly teaches. We're literally jeopardizing people's lives. When we tell people, if you die without Christ, you're eternally lost. If we don't tell them that, then we're, we're, we're completely not preaching what Jesus has asked us to preach. He's told us that. We're calling all men unto Christ. We're calling all men unto salvation. But we also got to show them what the problem is. If I came to you and I gave you a bottle of pills and said, here, take these every day, he doesn't care. He's going to go, what, what's... Throw it over your face. But if I had to do these pills and say, man, dude, you got a condition, and if you don't take these every hour on the hour, you're going to die. He'd set his clock to take those pills. But they, the, the solution didn't mean anything to him until he realized he had a problem. Once you realize you have a problem, now all of a sudden the solution begins to matter to you. Jesus doesn't matter to a lot of people because they don't know the condition that they're in. It's true. They don't understand that they're lost. They just think, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh, you Christians, oh, you Christians. I had, a, I had a family member over Thanksgiving. This will shut him up right away. He starts mocking me and all this other stuff and whatever. Love the guy, you know, with you. Got the whole deal, you know, so don't want to go too far. But says a bunch of stuff to me, and I'm like, okay, I can handle that. And then, you know, I'm like, whatever, okay, I can handle that. And, you know, and I responded a little bit. And he's like, well, if it's what you say is true, when I stand before Jesus, I'm just going to, and Jesus, if it is real, I'm going to say these things to him. I go, you're not going to open your mouth, man. You're not going to open your mouth. And that's, that's the sobering reality. You are going to die in your sin. There's not going to be a negotiation. You're going to stand before the judge. The indictment is going to be read, and you're going to be thrown. That's the way it's going to be. Amen. I, I mean, I'm not making this up. That's why he came to save us. Jesus, this is important. Jesus didn't put us in this condition. Our ancestor put us in this condition, and we've amplified it. We've been born, we're born into sin, we have a sin nature, and we demonstrate it every day, right? So we're born lost, so Jesus didn't do anything to put us in this condition. Jesus came to save us from it, to all who are willing. And so you've got to be willing. If he's, got, he's offering it, but you've got to want it. You've got you to want to have it. Without him, there is no life, there is no forgiveness, there is no freedom. When life comes, you awaken. And it tells us this, that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't overcome it. This is important. I love this word. It's called catalambano. Darkness can never, ever defeat the light. Period. You are an undefeatable people. You can't be defeated. There's no way, no how. The only way you you are defeated is when you quit. This is, again, why the enemy suppresses. This is, again, why the enemy lies to you. He lies to you to get you to believe something that's contrary to what God says. And the reason that he lies to you, because the spirit world operates by agreement. He couldn't do anything until he brought Adam into an agreement. And so what he's trying to do, God says this about you, 
And so heaven is trying to get you into an agreement and into an alignment to bring about the blessing. The enemy will lie to you and suppress you to get you to agree, yes, I'm a loser. Yes, never thing's going to change. He's trying to get you into an agreement so that he can empower that. The, the kingdom works off, the spirit world works off of agreements. As a man thinks in his heart, what we agree with, so we are. That's part of it. But he, what the enemy is doing is to the believer is he's suppressing the believer, he's lying to the believer, and he's trying to get the believer to quit. But what the Bible tells us is that you cannot be defeated, and the only way you can be defeated is if you quit. Contalambano, what it means is it's impossible. The light is impossible to overtake. It's impossible. And like the image is, is that you pounce on it and you bounce off. So the enemy's going to pounce and he's going to bounce. He's going to pounce and he's going to bounce. He can't defeat you. You're undefeatable. So long as you don't quit and you continue to pursue the, the heart of God, you can't be defeated. Anybody been through some really dark times and you didn't quit and you came in in victory and you're like, wow, whew, I didn't think I was going to make it, but I made it. You know why? Because darkness cannot overtake you. Darkness cannot defeat you. He works all things out to the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. God's not the author of those circumstances, but he's going to use it and he's going to benefit you. You're going to be blessed no matter what. You're going to come out of it. You're going to come over Next slide. I think it's the last one. It says the light gives, the light, gives light to every man and woman coming into the world. It's this, it's the word light is the word phos. It's like phosphorus, the absolute whitest light you could possibly see. And so what the light does is it does this. It's the Greek word photizi, or photizi, yeah, photizi. That's how it's pronounced, photizi. So it's the Greek word photizi. It's where we get the word photograph. So long before we had photographs, there was a photizi, and what it means is to image correctly or to be revealed by light. And so what happens is, is that the light of God, the light of Jesus, is shined upon all, and it's to reveal, uh, to reveal the, true, the, the, the true image by light. So the, Jesus, what Jesus does is he holds the light up to every man and shows them, you're lost. He holds the light up to all of the, God's children, and he shows you who you are. That's why you hear me preach identity all the time, because he's trying to show you who you are. This is the light. He's trying to get you to buy into the image that he has for you, not the false identities that everybody else has given you. This is who he says you are. He, the light is going to show you who you are. But good, evil, left, right, up, down, saved, not saved. The word of God is powerful, sharper than any edge of two-edged sword. So Jesus is the word of God. And what is he doing? He's dividing soul from spirit, bone from marrow, dividing everything. And he's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. He's showing you what, what's, what's righteous, what's not. He's showing you what's good, what's bad. He's showing you who's saved, who's not. He's revealing it. That's what the light does. John, Jesus said this. Again, this is what he does. Jesus comes to bring people to a point of decision. We just think that Jesus likes to hang out and be everybody's buddy. He does not, that's like, when you watch him and you read what he does in the Gospels, it's, it's like, it, with the people, he's totally cool, right? So he's hanging out, and he's with the sinners, and he's with all them, and he goes, hey, you guys are broken, you're lost, you know, and you're, 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 you have no, no hope at all. And they go, yeah, please help us. And he's like, yeah, no problem. To the religious leaders, he comes, he tells them that, they say as a demon, and so then it evolves into this confrontation, and Jesus has this confrontation with them all the time. And you just think he wants to put his arms around everybody and sing kumbaya. That's not the case. He goes right at them. He sees that he, he, sees that he offends them. Some of the most favorite stories I have that offended them. And Jesus goes, oh, that offended you? Well, watch this. He goes to a whole other level. You know? <laughs> that offended you? Oh, it offended you that I told her her sins were forgiven. Well, watch this one. She now has eternal life. You're saved. Your faith has saved you. 
He takes it to a whole other level. Oh, it offended you that I said that? Well, let me show you this. Oh, you don't think I can heal on the Sabbath? You don't think that that's right? That's going to offend you? Hey, come here. Put your hand out. He put it right in their face. Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to provoke a response. He tries to provoke a response. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would, be, they would have excuses for their sin. But because I've spoken to them, they have no excuse. Jesus was constantly trying to bring people to a point of decision. And he's doing it today. He's doing it today. And what we as Christians can't be is we can't be uncomfortable when things are going on in our culture that are forcing people into a decision with Jesus. We can't be that way. We can't be uncomfortable. We can't kill our prophets. This is one of the things the church gets really uncomfortable. In our modern age, we, 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 we kill the guy who stands up and preaches repentance. We kill him. No, that's not nice. You know, we kind of want the Joel Osteen effect. No offense to Joel Osteen. Bless Joel Osteen. He's trying to serve the Lord. But, and, but my point is, is that it's all shiny, happy people. Everything's kind. And it's, it's not that way across the board. Some people need it straight, and they need it right at them. They need it that way. And we are living in a culture right now that needs it straight, and they need it right at them. And the church gets uncomfortable and we get all queasy about it. We can't get queasy if somebody's calling people to a point of repentance. We can't get queasy. The person may not be the most beautiful person in the world, but if they're doing something like that, we can't, we can't go, that's wrong. Oh, that's not nice. That's not tolerant. We should be more tolerant. We should be more loving. No, we need to realize that that's the gospel and that's the spirit of God bringing people to a decision. What do you care if they reject him? It doesn't matter to me. If, they re if you reject him, hey, man, okay, you reject him. But we shouldn't have a problem when, when the point of decision is being laid at someone's feet because it needs to be because that's exactly what he does. So we can't do that. And what we have a choice to do, and I'll pray and we'll just dismiss. What man has a choice, Jesus brings you to a point of decision and he wants to give you an opportunity. You can keep the old life. You can keep what you have or you can give it away. That's what he says. If you keep your life and you hold on to it, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you're going to find it. That's what he's saying. You can keep what you have. Keep going where you're going to go. But in the end, you're going to lose. Or you can give it away to me now, and in the end, you're going to win. And so that's the choice that we have. The gospel is very clear. Jesus is the word of God, and we should not be uncomfortable when the decision point is brought to, brought to pass. Agreed? Amen? Yes? We have a prayer. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's just close here. We're going to close with a prayer of salvation. Why not? Let's just do it.